Greetings, family. I'm going to be reading a story from my mother's favorite song. Page 169. On the subject of humility. Humility. This introduction will be short. I'll let the stories speak for themselves. I had problems with humility all my life. That is a fact. It isn't easy for me to understand why I have a problem with humility. Because if anything ought to come naturally to me, it should be humility. What I mean is, all I have to do is take even a casual look at myself. All of the blunders, stupidity, forgetfulness, regrets, second-guessing, and if I had it to do over again, I sure to do it different statements to figure out that I am not too bright and deserve to be pitied more than scorned. The recognition of our humanity, the recognition of our humanity, the brevity of our time here, our failure to learn anything from history, which, which leads to the endless repetition of tragedy, our inability to alter our lives or change our personalities, although God can do both, should produce humility in all of us, but it doesn't. That is why we go on making the same mistakes. I know of nothing that would ease our journey more than a good dose of humility. I'm sitting outside. This is a wonderful book. I don't know where I picked it up, but I sure enjoy it now and then. I had one of these young blue jays come and land on my lap and look at me. I was eating my breakfast and giving some to the cat. Then the bird came. I guess he didn't see my face under the palm tree sitting there. He came and landed on my, on my lap like wanting a piece of bread or something. A very... So here we go. Laughter. Good medicine for pride. I used to live in Lubbock, Texas. The reason that's important is that Lubbock, Texas, is one of the few places on earth where things like this happen. One day I was on my way to meet someone for lunch, and I was running a little late. I got behind an old Ford truck. I mean, an old Ford truck, about a 1947 or 48 vintage. This truck was not one of those chopped down, hoodless, magnesium rim, fat tired, two four barrel supercharged, chrome plated, flame painted, T bucket 427, hot rod Chevy, four on the floor that occasionally graces the streets in this far city and wrecks havoc upon the mental serenity of its sober, stable, and conservative citizen. Citizenry. Citizenry. No, this was a genuine, fresh off the farm, original condition, original owner, original driver, legitimate work truck with real cow manure in the bed. It was driven, perhaps pointed, would be more accurate, by a white haired, bib overhaul, toothpick chewing, cowboy hat wearing, red faced farmer whose neck had more wrinkles and creases on it than a topographical map. He was in my lane, both hands gripping the steering wheel, moving sedately at about 15 miles per hour. Because there was traffic on both sides, I could do absolutely nothing except blow my stack and my horn at the stupid clodhopper who had the unmitigated effrontery to impede the progress of such an important personage as myself. About 30 yards from the next intersection, the light turned yellow. I hit the accelerator. He hit the brakes. He stopped, so did I, but not very gracefully, about two inches from his back bumper. All the papers that were sitting on the passenger seat slid into the floor in mass confusion. I saw him look at me in his rearview mirror and slowly shook his head in a sort of a sad, condescending way. As we waited for the light to change, I noticed a sticker on his tailgate. 
I may be slow, but I'm ahead of you. <laughs> well, that absolutely did it. When the light changed, I jammed the accelerator to the floor, burning rubber with both tires. I jumped into the right lane between two cars, veered into a right turn lane, and blew past the car on my left. As I was running out, out of turn lane, I cut back to the left in front of the car I had just passed and then pulled in front of the Ford truck. I felt like A.J. Foyt just winning the Indianapolis 500. I broke every speed law ever invented in a determined effort to make the next light, and I would have accepted there was a police car sitting at the next light facing me. I locked, I locked up all four wheels and screeched sideways to a stop about halfway through the intersection. I sat there with blue smoke from my tires drifting and gathering around me. Then I had to suffer the humiliation of having to back up in order to clear the intersection. Traffic had stopped in every direction, and I was the object of most horn-blowing, head-shaking, and unwanted attention from the man in blue. It's really hard to act cool and nonchalant in situations like that. About 15 seconds later, who should pull up next to me but my toothpick-chewing friend? I tried so hard not to look at his direction, to ignore him, to act casual, but I had my T-top removed and my windows down, and I could feel him looking at me. Finally, I looked up right into two watery blue eyes. Where are you going, Sonny? It was the emphasis on the Sonny that got me. Too embarrassed and frustrated to make a clever reply, I said, absolutely nowhere. Well, he said with a West Texas drawl, I'm sure you'll be the first one there. There are few things in life so absolutely humbling as the full realization that you have made a complete fool of yourself. There are several distinct ways of dealing with this realization, but the most satisfying way of dealing with it, it is to laugh. I don't mean to smile or chuckle. I mean a double over tears streaming down thigh slapping laugh that leaves you choking and breathless. It is even preferable that you relate your foolishness to someone else and let them laugh with you or at you. What's wrong with being laughed at? Only our ego-centered pride denies others the pleasure of laughing at our foolishness. Humility, on the other hand, has the ability to save us from ourselves and bring relief to our frustrated and stressful lives. Humility allows us to receive grace from God and to accept it from others. Humility gives and those about us unlimited access to one of life's greatest pleasures, laughter. Laughter is one of the cheapest and most healing medicines that God has ever bestowed upon his people. How sad that this healing balm is denied both to ourselves and to others by our ridiculous pride. Beautiful, 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 wonderful words of life. All right, our next story is Waiting on Tables. And uh, I have a friend of mine that waits on tables on the uh, Brown Derby over here in Pasadena. And he says a lot of the jockeys from the go there from the Santa Ana race place. I have a good friend that works there in the 12-step program. He helps the jockeys. On, they have 12-step programs to control their drinking. And uh, he was telling me that uh, all these jockeys with a high-pitched voice were having a celebration, and he was waiting on them. And they all have girls or girlfriends that look like they're, they are their daughters. He was explaining to me. But once they get a few drinks in them, they act like they're six and a half feet tall. And this waiter friend of mine, he is six and a half feet tall. And he's sober and he's got over a year in the program. And it's hilarious to hear the stories from both sides. I've been to the meetings where those uh, jockeys are, famous jockeys. 
I've been to the restaurant with them where the waiters and people stop and, and ask them questions. They're just regular people needing conversation and love like we all need. All right, moving right along, our next story is Waiting on Tables. This is page 171 of my mother's favorite song by Smith. The teacher, the author name is Smith. His, his experiences. I was having lunch with an attorney, an educator, a banker, an insurance salesman, and a politician. I assure you, I left my wallet at home and refused to agree or disagree with anything anybody said. When I received the invitation from the lawyer, my first reaction was to decline, especially when he offered to buy my lunch. I was reminded of the wise maxim that says, there is no such thing as a free lunch. But then I remember that Jesus ate with publicans, harlots, and sinners. That made me more comfortable because I was sure that everyone in this group would fit into a, at least one of those categories. We ate at a very nice restaurant, but our waiter was slow, not only of foot, but also of mind. He forgot us periodically. I did not only mean that he forgot to take our orders, bring our food, fill our glasses, and bring our check. He did that all right, but he also forgot us. I mean that he forgot we existed. We had to go and find him three times. All of this led to waiters and services being the topic of discussion during lunch. I was glad it was a safe topic because none of us were ever likely to find ourselves in that role. And in a crowd like that, there aren't many safe topics. <laughs> but the attorney and the educator stated vehemently that if they were waiters, they would be rich because they knew what people wanted in a waiter. They assume, of course, that what they want in a waiter is what everybody wants and that by putting on servants' clothes, they could put on a servant's attitude. They also saw service not as a way of life, not as having any intrinsic value in life, but as an expression of purpose, but as a means of wealth and thereof, as a means to stop being servants, as a means to be served instead. One of the problems with being a servant is that you are surrounded by people who are not servants who have never been servants, who never will be servants, but who know exactly what a servant ought to be and so are constantly demanding that those who are servants live up to a non-servant's expectation of servanthood. Three of the men at my table actually stated that they could make more money as waiters than at their profession. Of course, none of them put on an apron and they were wrong, they would have starved to death as servants. Service is an attitude and approach to life. You cannot take it off and put it on with an apron. Jesus was a servant to all, and he never saw it as a means to anything but a closer walk with God and greater service. He knew who he was and why he was here, and he never forgot it. He knew he could pick up another people's trash, carry out the garbage, clean their toilets, serve their meals, and wash their feet, and never lose his identity as the Son of God. He never had to act humble because he was. Now, you may think I read this story earlier and it was going to talk about servants, waiters. I had no idea that it was going to go on that respect of servanthood. I may add that this Davy has had a hard time staying sober in the past. He has over a year, and we gave him the position as secretary at the park, bringing, bringing the chips, and he constantly um, does a great job of waiting on people. He makes sure the new people get the chips, the 60, 30, 90-day chip they need. He makes sure that the flow of reading information of the AA Big Book, Alcoholic Anonymous, that the, the people that come are usually in halfway centers, young girls taken out of the street and put into a program 
where they can become spiritually high-minded and start to love themselves through the 12-step program. They aren't, they aren't bad people. They're just been people that have been brought up with, spoken to, uh, ridicule, demanded, and not trusted. They ended up in the streets. Us parents, we don't know how to bring kids up, so we bring up dysfunctional kids because we were dysfunctional. From, from a dysfunctional kid and being a parent, the best way is to, is to trust them, love on them, and just commend them to God. And don't let ridicule live in the house. For instance, if you don't agree with smoking, and drinking, and cussing in front of you, then don't allow it. Don't allow internet usage and staying up night, cut it off. Don't allow no exercise. You have to be strong, you have to be firm. We are representative society. And the Bible says is that we'll, we'll put them to hell if we're coward to, to train them and teach them the right way. Don't let them go with the opposite sex. Don't let them, unless they're fully, they're in hormones and they're ready to go, but you know what I mean. Um, do whatever you can. You can do it. It's only for a few years. Stay strong. Virtue, virtue. They have Alateen programs, Alatot, teach them basics. Alanon. All will teach you character and, and live and let live and progress. Amen. Enough of that. Our next story on humility is following Jesus. This is on page 172. If any man would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Mark 8.34. He was a ninth grade English teacher. And he was a Christian. He was a large man with an athletic and intimidating physique. The school he taught in was located on the bad side of town, and the kids were loud, tough, cruel, vulgar, and unappreciative. Although his students liked him well enough, they thought he was an old duck because he really believed that education was important and therefore took his duties much too seriously. His habits of referring to them as Mr. and Miss was too much. They ridiculed him for it constantly. He told them it was a sign of respect. It was the hardest years of teaching he had ever had. And although he had put everything he had into it, signs of progress and reward were few. One afternoon, during the last period of a very long and difficult day, he overheard one of the boys make an extreme cruel and suggestive remark to one of the girls. It wasn't that he hadn't heard it before. Maybe it was because the school had no air condition and he was hot. Maybe it was because he had a splitting headache. Maybe he was just tired and fed up. It's hard to say. But he reacted. Mr. Hutchinson, I am sick of your filthy mouth. I want you to stand up right now and apologized to Miss Devore. It was quiet all of a sudden. Mr. Hutchins did not move. He started. He stared at the teacher with unbelief and defiance. He had never apologized to anyone in his life, and to do so under the circumstances would be a tremendous loss of face. He remained in his seat. Mr. Hutchinson, the teacher rose from his desk and moved to the row the boy was sitting in. His growing anger made his voice dangerously quiet, almost a whisper, and he was trembling. He was conscious of two opposing things simultaneously. First, he wished he had not made a public issue out of this, and second, he was glad he had, and he didn't care. Mr. Hutchins, I told you, stand up, and I mean it. Mr. Hutchinson remained seated, glaring insolently. The teacher grabbed him by his shirt, and jerked him to his feet. The boy's leg hit his desk and it turned over with a terrible crash, spilling books and papers everywhere. 
A girl in the next row bent to pick them up. Leave them where they are, Mrs. Johnson. Mr. Hutchison will pick them up after he has apologized. Now, Mr. Hutchison, I am waiting for you, your apology to Mrs. Devore, and I will not wait very long. He was spitting the words out, and his anger was out of control. Ms. Devore, the boy chuckled with an emphasis on the Devore. Don't you mean, Miss? He used a rhyming common vulgar expression for girls with loose morals. The class erupted in laughter, and he looked up at the embarrassed and angry girl with an arrogant, triumphant smirk. The teacher still had the boy's shirt grasped firmly in his hand, and using the grip for leverage, he jerked the boy towards him and slapped him. He slapped him with every ounce of strength and energy he could muster. Slapped him right across the smirking, sneering, defiant mouth. His thumb must have caught the boy's nose, or it may have simply been the tremendous impact. But the boy's nose began to bleed profusely, and there was a thin trickle of blood in the corner of his mouth. The blow was so powerful that it stunned the boy. Angry red welts sprang to the surface of his face immediately, and he staggered and would have fallen if the teacher hadn't held him up. The only sound in the classroom were whispers of awe and admiration from those who were impressed by the force of the blow. The teacher's anger and resentment were quickly replaced with crushing disappointment. He marched a student still groggy and struggling with his equilibrium to the principal's office, seated him, explained briefly to the school secretary, and returned to his classroom. The low, exciting buff that he began when he was silent at his return, he righted the desk, picked up the books and papers, and tried to return to the lesson. Fortunately, the period ended almost immediately. The students rushed into the halls to spread the news, and he went back to the principal's office to call on the boy's parents and to explain in greater detail. The principal was understanding and supportive. The boy's father came immediately, and when he heard the story, he told the teacher he wouldn't have any problem from him, that his son had gotten exactly what he deserved, and that he hoped it would teach him a lesson. The teacher had thought it would certainly cost him his job. He knew he had already cost him something of far greater value, his respect and much of what he had for all these weeks been trying to teach, that Jesus makes us different. In this school, his actions was much admired by the students. They spoke of his force to the, of the blow with awe and respect in their voices. Did you see Dick's head snap back when he hit him? It looked like he hit him with a brick. They thought more of their teacher because he had reacted according to their standards of manhood. Never take any, anything off of anybody. He went home utterly defeated. It came to him that night what he must do. Although there were no cafeteria, most of the kids ate sack lunches every day on the bleachers in the gym. He called the principal that night and asked him to call a school assembly the next day at noontime. The teacher stood before a quiet, solemn student body and made a very sincere apology, not just to Mr. Hutchinson, but to the faculty, the principal, and to every student whom he thought he had disappointed. He asked the forgiveness of all. When he finished, he walked towards the bleachers in shoulder slump, his heart heavy with failure. There was a stirring among the, some of the students and from the crowd came Mr. Hutchinson. He and the teacher met about halfway across the floor and the boy was close to tears. They shook hands and the boy turned to his fellow students. I want to apologize to Mr. So-and-so. What I did was wrong and what he did was right. He paused, he was trying to work up to something and it was tough. I want to apologize also, <clears throat> also to Nan, Miss Devore. I'm sorry I said what I did and I want her to forgive me. The student body stood and cheered and applauded. The healing seemed to melt and run through the whole school. It became the end thing to call everybody Mr. and Miss. Many good natural jokes and wisecracks came from it, but there was much goodwill too. I wish I could say that humility always works, but it doesn't. Jesus was the most humble man who ever lived, and it got him killed. But there is great victory in the cross. 
the cross of Calvary and the cross that he has called us to bear. There is healing and power and humility in foot watching and going the extra mile in self-sacrifice and in turning the other cheek. Most of us never experience that healing or power because we don't have the humility to do those things. We're too busy defending our rights. If a man should come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. This way or his way is never easy, but it is always the best. What a story. What a story. I'll go ahead and and start in the next segment on page 167. Excuse me, 176. And the next story is called, Please Take My Umbrella. Thank you for Stories from the book, My Mother's Favorite Song by John William Smith. Our story begins on page 176 on the subject of humility. Please take my umbrella. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 1 John 3.18 It was right after class and it was raining. I was standing just outside the doorway, but under the protection of the overhang, uh, to the entrance of Maybe Hall. I was looking wishfully at the rain and debating whether or not a dash to the student center for a Coke was worth it. As I was pondering this deep theological problem, a young man addressed me from the crosswalk about 30 feet away. I couldn't understand him, so I just smiled and waved. He changed directions and came towards me. His dark face peering out from under a rather tattered, much-used worse for the wear umbrella. I couldn't help but notice his worn sneakers and ill-fitting trousers. He addressed me again, although his English was broken, obviously a second language. I understood that he wished to loan me his umbrella. I didn't know him personally, but I knew that he must be one of several Nigerian students who were on our campus. Since I didn't really need to go anywhere, I indicated that I could get along all right without it. I could tell immediately that he was actually hurt by my refusal. I mean, he really wanted me to use his umbrella. I didn't want him to get wet just so I could go and get a Coke but seeing the look on his face and knowing how difficult it would be to explain, I asked how I could return it to him. In this room, let it be, he replied. After my class, I will come for it. He, he placed it in my hands with a look of genuine pleasure, and without another word, he bounced out into the rain and ran lightly across the grass. Thank you very much, I shouted after him. He stopped and turned and waved, and his smile showed the enjoyment and goodwill he obviously felt. He warmed my heart. He acted as though I had just made his day. Although this happened many years ago, I still think about it. It left, it left a lasting impression on me. One thing that occurred to me is that this young man noticed me. There were hundreds of students passing by, most with umbrellas, but this young man from Nigeria was the only one who offered. He was the only one who spoke. He was the only one who saw me. The rest had their heads down, looking for puddles. Their minds were filled with thoughts about themselves, their classes, their tests, their ride home this weekend, keeping their shoes and their clothes dry, their grades, their problems, their love, interests, with their popularity, their schedule. They were so full of themselves that there was no room in their consciousness for anyone else. This young man saw me because he was thinking of not thinking about himself. He was looking for me, not me specifically, you understand, but for someone like me, someone he could help. This young man left 
his room that moment thinking, this would be a good day to help somebody. The rest of us left our rooms thinking only about themselves. I think about my own feeble attempts at generosity. I realize that the good things I do are seldom the result of planning of thinking ahead about the needs of others. With me, it's more of an accident. Occasionally, I am so confronted with someone else's need that I am shaken from my own world long enough to respond. Even then, I am often heartfelt-hearted in extending my help. When I offer financial assistance to, to coach a little league team, I ride to the store to pick up someone's child from the dentist. To clean up after dinner, I wonder if I offer it in such a way that my insincerity is apparent when my help is rejected. Am I relieved? When we offer to render assistance, is it obvious that we are simply trying to be mannerly to show the outward form that is expected of us? If I can help in some way, let me know. Come and see us sometime. Could I pay for this? The statements are not necessarily hypocritical, but they are often trite, meaningless, polite way of saying, don't bother me unless it's an emergency. One other thing, sometimes I do the right thing naturally. It's not often, I'm afraid, but in the case of the umbrella, I praise God that I had the humility to allow this young man to help me. Don't let your ego stand in the way to someone else's pleasure. Our next story is called Humility and Fear. The scripture is 1 John 3.18. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. Harold was tough. He was tough in the class sense of the word. He was also mean. There wasn't an ounce of compassion or sympathy in him, and he was only in the ninth grade. He was nearly 17, stocky, very strong, and he might have been good-looking except his eyes were a shade too close together and his complexion was bad. He was in my English class. It was a tough school, full of tough kids where the degree of survival was equated with the degree of toughness, and Harold survived very well. I had taken a, a, this job about one-third of the way through the school year. The previous teacher had simply walked out of her classroom and into the principal's office and had announced her immediate, final, and irrevocable retirement. She didn't even finish the day. I needed a job badly, and when this position was offered to me, I took it quickly, too quickly. After the first, first day, I understood why she had quit and almost decided that I didn't need a job this badly. They were monsters. Every imaginable negative adjective applied strictly and specifically. Loud, profane, immoral, uncaring, vulgar, crude, undisciplined and unfeeling. They screamed the grossest profanities right across the classroom. The boys mouthed lewd suggestions openly and the girls made even more lewd comments in return. It was an eye-opener for this small town boy. Harold was the ringleader. He set the tone. He defied anyone he defied anyone to match his disgusting behavior. On one occasion, he took the crutches of a permanently crippled boy, smashed them to pieces, stuffed the pieces in a trash can, and went off laughing, leaving the crippled boy helpless in the bathroom. On another occasion, he threatened and cowed as much smaller boys, forcing him to break all the windows out of the principal's car. Then, then he reported him. These are the things I can write about. There were other things much worse. I really tried hard with Harold. I tried to love him. I prayed about him often. I showed him every conceivable kindness. He thought I was weak. 
afraid of him, and he scorned me publicly. He threatened to chew me up because he said I was soft and gutless. My principal, who was one of the finest men I ever met, called me one Saturday morning, quite early. He told me that Harold was in the hospital, that he had been severely beaten, and had mentioned my name to his parents. I went to see him, but I would have never recognized him. Beaten does not adequately describe Harold's condition. He had several broken ribs from being kicked and stomped. He had a broken arm, a broken nose, and a fractured skull from having his head pounded repeatedly into the pavement. One of his ears had been somehow cut to ribbons and was barely attached to his head. His face was so swollen and discovered from bruises, abrasions, lacerations that he had no discernible features and he could barely see from only one eye. He was a changed young man. He had encountered fear, something he produced in others, but knew little of himself. He was afraid and that fear had made him humble. He talked little and only in whisper, but there was a haunted tone in his words. And none of his old arrogance, I didn't know what to say, and I was uncomfortable. So was he. But he didn't want me to go, and so I stayed. I asked him if he wanted me to pray. I took, it took him a moment as he fought with his old pride and his disdain for anything that expressed need or dependence. But finally he nodded yes. I stood by, by his bedside and I prayed. I prayed as fervent and as heartfelt a prayer I have ever prayed or uttered. I prayed that God could show Harold that he loved him and that Harold could be changed and healed. At some point during that prayer, I felt something touch my arm. I can feel the prickly sensation yet. It was Harold trying to find my hand. He was just a frightened little boy after all. All his pride reduced his humility by a real practical fear that led him to seek comfort outside of himself. Not all people come to God in this way. The way of humility learned through fear not all people come to God in this way. The way of humility learn through fear, but many do, and for some, it is the only way for some. Our next story is called One to the One of These Little Ones. To One of These Little Ones. In Matthew 10, 42, Whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. Matthew 10, 42. It was one of those nights when I simply could not go to sleep. Every time I got close, some new idea would rattle through my brain and I would pursue it until another one crossed that track and it took me in a different direction. It was a rainy, very hard, which normally helps. But tonight, nothing helped. I finally got up and went to the living room to read. It was 1.30 a.m. I always have several different books. I am in the process of reading, but tonight I decided to read the Bible. I was deeply engrossed in 2 Kings 5, the story of Naaman, when the phone rang. Who in the world will be calling me at one o'clock in the morning? When I picked up the receiver, I knew immediately what it was, and a hardcore cynicism crept over me. Is this the pastor for the Church of Christ? Yes, I said. I'm not a member of your church. I'm a member of the Faith Gospel Church, and well, 
I've been to my brother's funeral in Arizona and we're on our way home. We had some unexpected transmission trouble in Gallup, New Mexico, and our funds are very low. Why is it always a funeral and why is car trouble always unexpected? I mean, it is the nature of cars to break down. Isn't all car trouble to be expected? I waited for the punchline. But this is not the reason I called. Oh, well, sir, we had a bit of bad luck. Yes, I thought, and so have I. We had a flat tire and my jack won't work. There are no service stations near us and we desperately need help. I have to be at work in the morning or I'll lose my job. I know it's late and it's raining, but I will pay you $15 if you will come and help us. I called two service stations, but they said it would cost $40. And I don't have that much. I called a Baptist minister and a Methodist. They told me that people shouldn't get out of the road without enough money to cover emergencies. I'm wondering if you would help us. I know it sounds dumb, but after being coned at least 6,000 times, I decided to help this guy. Maybe it was because I found it odd that I was sitting here reading my Bible at one o'clock in the morning when I would normally be asleep when this guy called. Maybe I felt a little guilty about my hard hardness and cynicism, but I found out where he was and hung up. As I rummaged in my closet for some old clothes, I heard the sleepy voice of my wife. Who was uh, that on the phone, honey? Oh, some guy with a flat tire wanting help. What are you doing? Oh, I thought I'd go and sort of the assets the situation. Do you understand how ridiculous that sounds? The next time she spoke, she was much more alert. It's nearly two o'clock and it's raining, she said, as if I didn't know. I know, I said. Who is this person, she asked. Just a guy. Do you think it's safe? Remember the story last month about the people who stopped to help someone and what happened? I'll be okay. I got a feeling I ought to do this. John, I wish you wouldn't. I got a feeling too, and it would mean a lot to me if you wouldn't go. I have to go, I promised the guy. I'll be there fit in 15 minutes. He's got a family. So do you, she said, so do you. I'll be all right. I'll promise I'll be careful. I found the guy all right, and he did have a family. He was skinny, very poorly dressed, dirty, soaking wet, exhausted, and defeated. He was driving a black and green 64 Buick Electra, loaded to the max with luggage a wife and three of the chunkiest kids I ever seen. He was desperate. He was a decent, simple man, a good man who was struggling against the insurmountable obstacles throwing against him by a society that sets no value upon either goodness, decency, or simplicity. He had been to his brother's funeral, and he had transmission trouble in Gallup. His jack was broken. The only jack I had was a small hydraulic one that had to go under the rear axle. It took me over an hour to change his tire, and when I finished, I was filthy, dirty, soaking wet from crawling under his car. When I finished, I said, well, that does it. You can get back on the road now. I sure hope you don't have another flat. He motioned for me to walk over to the light of a nearby convenience store. He fumbled awkwardly in his front pants pocket and pulled out some wet, wadded, and crumbled up bills. In a halting voice and with shaking fingers, he began separating, straightening, and counting them. Out loud, a five and ten ones. It was the last vestige of pride he had proving that he had the money, and then, with a trembling hand, he offered those soggy bills to me. And he really meant it. 
As he extended his hand, I backed away from him so suddenly that it startled him. I protested that I couldn't possibly take this money. The money was like a holy thing, like David's jar of water from the well near Bethlehem. I knew my hand would turn white with leprosy if I touched it. God will strike me dead if I touch that money, I thought. I thought of the beautiful house I lived in, of my beautiful wife and children, healthy, dry, and safe at home in their beds. I thought of how good life was for us and all of the advantages I had. They had never been so precious to me as at that moment. It was an honor to be chosen by God for this task tonight. A blessing, a priceless treasure had come, had become mine because of this experience. To take the money would cheapen it. I ran to my truck. I needed to tell you this. First, because it's true. And second, because I do not wish for you to think me a better person than I am. When I left home, I had placed my wallet under the seat fearing a robbery. I had $87 in my wallet. I took out the $7 and offered it to him. He refused. I begged him to take it in Jesus' name for my sake. He reluctantly took the money and I tried to tell him what a blessing he was to me. His name was De White and he was from Gardendale, Alabama. He told me that if I ever was ever close to Gardendale, to please stop and eat with him. I have never witnessed such heartfelt gratitude. He told me how great it was to meet a preacher who acted like a Christian. He mended, and I believed him. I believe him because I chose to, and I believe I gave a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple. In a world filled with cynicism, skepticism, isolation, and distrust, our Lord Jesus Christ gave me a special blessing that night. But it occurred to me that I only received the blessing because I had the humility to accept the task. In fact, just before I went to sleep, or maybe it was just after I thought I heard him say, You didn't too badly tonight, John. In fact, I was rather proud. I might take, make something of you yet. I might make something of you yet. Our next story is called One Cherry Tree. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. John 6.53 When I was in high school, I dated a girl whose name was Gwendolyn. Actually, Gwendolyn Branson, of course, that is not her real name, but it's very close. No one ever called her Gwendolyn. We call her Gwen. This story is not about her, however, it's about her parents. During the time we dated, which lasted my first year of college, I became very attached to her parents, especially her mother. So much so, in fact, that even after Gwen and I stopped dating, I visited and corresponded with them. Years later, after Gwen and I had both married, not to each other, obviously, I learned that Mrs. Mr. Branson was very ill, and I determined to visit them. Gwen's folks had moved to Traverse City, Michigan. When I arrived, I learned that Mr. Branson was more ill than I had thought, and that he was extremely depressed. Although his illness did not incapacitate him, he spent nearly all his time in the house, and there he confined himself to an upstairs bedroom. He was morose, unconversational, unconversational, and negative, and he spent most of his time brooding. It was spring. My trip to Traverse City providentially coincided with the blossoming of the cherry trees, blossom cherry trees, which grow in profusion in the chores of Grand Traverse Bay. Miles and miles of cherry trees, row after row, stretched upward from the roadside to the top of the hills. 
The blending of pinks, whites, oranges, greens, and lavenders. The smells not only of the blossom, but of the rich black loamy oil soil. The sounds of buzzing bees, robins, red-winged blackbirds, orioles, and canaries. The deep blue bay itself reflecting the cotton candy clouds. The children running about. The small green shuttered white cottages across the bay. The harbor with its thousands of grateful sailboats. It was, well, it was quite beautiful. Breathtaking, really. No camera could do it justice. Cameras do not record the singing of the birds or the smell or the laughing children. The smells rode the breeze that swept up off the bay, a breeze that was so rich with the nectar of life that it carried nourishment and impregnated those who inhaled it with youth, vigor, insensibility, making you feel you could live forever. And you can, you know. Mr. Branson and I drove out to the very bay. Mrs. Branson and I drove out to the bay very early the two days I spent there. We returned laughing, uplifted, and animated. Mr. Branson would not go. We begged him. He was resolute. They had a single cherry tree in their front yard, and it also was in bloom. He could see it easily from his upstairs bedroom. At one point, as I pleaded with him to go on with us, he pointed to the tree and with a singular dismissing wave of the hand that he used to brush away all disagreeable things, he said, Oh, John, you're just a romantic. If you've seen one cherry tree, you've seen them all. But it needs to be said that even if that were true, and it is not true, he hadn't seen the other. He hadn't seen that one either. My main purpose of this visit was to talk to Mr. Branson about eternal considerations, about his soul. It was no easy task. He listened. He wasn't rude, but he was totally apathetic. My attempts to find responsive, a responsive chord met with that same disinterested, dismissing wave of the hand and, oh, John, you're a good boy and I appreciate you coming all this way, but you know I never did have any use for stuff like that and I haven't any use for it now. And he didn't. Mr. Branston's trouble with the gospel was directly associated with his trouble with the cherry tree. A mindset that says, if you've seen one cherry tree, you've seen them all, is also going to say, how can a man be born when he is old? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? What is truth? What is truth? Those are pretty good questions, penetrating questions, and Jesus does not give that kind of explanation that would satisfy us. He only affirms their truth by saying, No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of the water and spirit, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You have no life in you. I am the way and the truth. Although Mr. Brass's statement about cherry trees has some truth in it, I hope you also recognize that there is something terribly wrong with it. But what is wrong and why is it wrong? How can a thing be both right and wrong? Is it not because there are two kinds of truth? Perhaps two levels of truth would more accurately convey my meaning? There is that truth which is confined to the physical senses. Truth that is logical, literal, legalistic, rational, finite, earthy, and terrible, inferior to the second, which is spiritual truth. Spiritual truth is transcendent, unbound, and abstract, though no less real. It is truth that incorporates all senses, emotions, and reason 
but is infinite and heavenly, transcending the first, just as the light of the sun transcends that of a flashlight. That is why Mr. Branson's statement is true in the first sense of truth and totally false in the second. Talking about it is difficult. Writing about it is even more so. That is why the teachings of Jesus are called hard sayings. When Paul says that the natural man cannot receive the truth of God because they are spiritually discerned, he knows exactly what he's talking about because he was Saul of Tarsus. He was a natural mind. When he was Saul of Tarsus, he always knew the answer and he could have proven it with 14 syllogist arguments and 11 undeniable affirmations because he knew the truth of the law. But by his own admission, he did not know God because he says, Who are you, Lord? As Saul of Tarsus, he would have asked with Nicodemus, How can a man be born when he's old? And with those unbelieving Jews, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And with Pilate, what is truth? When Saul, by the grace of God, is forced to his knees, both physically and spiritually, by that great blinding supernatural light, when he hears that cosmic voice calling, Saul, Saul, and when he says, Who are you, Lord? He is well on his way to becoming the Apostle Paul, who no longer asks such ridiculous questions or saying things like, If you seen one cherry tree, you've seen them all. Mr. Branston's problem was that he was a natural man, and consequently he could see only with his eyes and not his heart. He lacked the humility that is necessary to believe that there could be a truth greater than himself. But God did not intend that he stay that way. It was God's will that he become a spiritual man by being born again and beginning the process of putting off the natural, fleshly man. Then the Holy Spirit would have opened his eyes and his heart would have been enlightened to a new and higher sense of truth and beauty. Mr. Branson said, Oh, John, I never had any use for that stuff. In his pride, he could not believe that he was going to hell because he would not believe that he could not go to heaven. What I saw in Mr. Branson was a man who had so nearly lost every semblance of the divine nature, who had so little appreciation for life, for beauty, and for truth, that he was closer to being an orangutan than a saint. Mr. Branson could not conceive himself better or worse than he was not bad enough to be lost or good enough to be saved. There is enough sadness in that to cause a mountain to weep. Since he lacked the humility to see himself as he was, he had no dream of becoming something infinitely better. After all, if you see one cherry tree, you've seen them all. Being born again would have opened Mr. Branson's eyes. I believe he would have understood that the glory of one blossoming tree is multiplied and enhanced by the glory of other blossoming trees. Although he might not ever have had the faith to look about him and see the mountains full of hordes of chariots of fire, or better yet, the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, he would certainly have learned that before a person is qualified to make any unequal statements about cherry trees in general. He must first see one cherry tree, and I don't think he ever did. And that's the chapter on humility. Amen. I was... Uh, section eight we just read i really enjoyed reading the stories this is a christian uh, teacher who writes uh, books for his mother 
My Mother's Favorite Song by John William Smith. Anyway, more to come. There's another chapter on laughter. Uh, eagerly waiting to read. Have a great time. Thank you for listening to me. God bless you. Let's go plant some cherry trees. Greetings, family. we got a little uh, book for today called Jesus Today. A friend of mine who was uh, homeless mentioned this to me. You know, it's just amazing how uh, people are so tough they can live out there. Uh, I remember taking a picture years ago with uh, three men. We all came out from the 12-step meeting, and they were all homeless. But we had one thing in common. We didn't drink. We were in the program. And there was, if you can look at those smiles, we're outside in the parking lot, uh, folded arms against each other, all four of us, and the smile of love was just amazing. Surrendered to everything, nothing missing, nothing broken. God is taking care of us, fresh air. Everybody's heart is strong from walking. <laughs> Let's pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I have two readings for today, one called Jesus Today, and the other one, the Eight Grapevine, which is a story called To Hell and Back. So here's the uh, Jesus for today. Uh, it says, These hope is an anchor for your soul. Firm and secure, a ship in turbulent water needs to drop anchor in a safe place. In stormy weather, a large ship may be unable to enter the safety of a harbor because of the wild waves buffeting the boat. So a smaller boat may be used to carry the ship's anchor through the breakers into the harbor. When the anchor is dropped there, the ship is secure, even though it is still in rough waters. This is a picture of how hope keeps your soul, the eternal part of you, safe and secure in the midst of life storms. To be effective, your hope must be solidly, solidly in me, the Savior.